Hi, and welcome to the Wellness Champions Network podcast. I'm Sarah McGuinness. The Wellness Champions Network is a group of leaders from around New Zealand who are passionate about creating workplaces that thrive. We catch up on a regular basis to share our knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to work well and live well. In this podcast, we turn our focus to the role that workplaces can play in preventing family violence. Family violence is a significant problem in our country. In New Zealand, one in three women are physically or sexually abused by a partner in their lifetime, and half of all New Zealand murders are domestic-related. In 2018, New Zealand police responded to a domestic violence situation every five minutes. To provide us with guidance on how workplaces can respond to this issue and keep people safe, I'm joined by Holly Carrington from Shine. Holly is Shine's DV-free and policy advisor. Shine is a charity and a service provider that has been helping victims of domestic abuse since 1990. As part of its services, Shine has developed the DV-free tick, which recognises workplaces that truly support employees to be safe. In this interview, Holly shares how workplaces can take meaningful steps to create environments that are safe and supportive for staff experiencing family violence and that do not tolerate abusive behaviour. We also explore how managers and colleagues alike can respond if they are concerned about a family violence situation and what role we can all play in creating a family violence-free New Zealand. start really broad and I thought that having mentioned those statistics and and I'm sure many of us are aware of the very high profile cases around family violence but in your sense as someone working on the front line you know where are we at in New Zealand around family violence? Well it's pretty bad (laughs) I guess you could say as a starting point Um, and actually the the one stat that you read out about the police is is worse than you said it's in fact every four minutes now the numbers kind of go up every year um, and police, I, I just heard from a police inspector recently that they now say that it's half of all of their frontline business is domestic violence. So it takes up half of the time of all the frontline police um, responding to domestic violence. So it is a massive issue in New Zealand. Uh, you know, in some ways, that's um, it's almost a good thing because we think that the growing numbers are largely due to better reporting. Um, but it might also be that there's an increase in prevalence. It's, it's hard to know. But at the same time, what we are seeing, I think it's safe to say, I mean, it's anecdotal. We don't have research to kind of back us up on this. But what our frontline advocates are seeing, you know, in my time at Shine, so I've been there almost 20 years, is I think an, an increase in really serious violence, um, you know, serious injury, that kind of thing. And just like what we would called domestic terrorism so it is that that kind of really serious horrific stuff is um, I think on the increase I don't know that that's going to be a surprise to anyone because we certainly hear it in the media as well you know you hear horrible stories about people being killed and all the rest and just to give a sense of uh, in terms of the workplace would you have any anecdotes you could share or some sense of 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 experiences that have happened in the workplace uh, to give some context 
Um, yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting. I delivered a ton of workplace training for first responders and managers in, um, this year, really, previous to this year as well, but it's really a huge amount this year. There's been such a huge demand for it, and we've been delivering training all over the country. And it's really rare to deliver a training session where at least one person in the room doesn't talk about having experienced it themselves. That's really rare. That's more common than not, you know, in a, in a group of managers, a group of first responders, you get one or two people talking about their own experience. Quite often, you, you, I also get stories about, um, you know, workplace situations that have come up in the past. And often it's, um, you know, something during the training triggers someone's memory and they hadn't remembered it until that point, like some event or person from some years back. And they think, God, I, I, really could have dealt with that so much better. You know, those those kinds of things. Um, and I've also heard, I have to say, probably about, probably about five stories by now of people who um, knew someone in the workplace who was killed. So it comes up more often than you'd think. Wow. <laughs> so just, just recently, um, a, a manager talked about a job she had just out of uni where a woman came to work with bruising around her neck her neck, and nobody said anything to this woman. Nobody knew what to say, so they didn't say anything. Um, and then two weeks later, she was killed by her ex. So just, you know, a, a real horror story, but, um, but not as uncommon as you might think. And I, and I wondered around that, you know, is, is there a fear component from other people about wanting to address, address this? Do you think there's a, there's a hesitation from the wider community about you know what do I say and and do you think there's oh, some, yeah. some myths some perceived ideas that we have around um, family violence that that perhaps hold us back from having those conversations? I uh, definitely I think probably a lot of people just are afraid to say anything because they don't know what to say they're afraid they'll say the wrong thing and, and I can understand that but I guess somewhere in there as well there's probably some of that belief um, that it's it's not my place. To ask a question about this because it's a private issue and so I think that's one of those carryover beliefs that um, is still quite pervasive out there whether it's subconscious or, or conscious that people feel like it's not their place to get involved and I think in the workplace especially because people think well that's their personal life that's not their work you know that's not their professional life so it's not my business to ask but I guess that's the problem with domestic nobody asks nobody knows yeah, so we, we need people to be brave and have those courageous conversations and, and ask those questions. Uh, yeah, but I guess about the myths, do you want me to talk a little bit more about some of that? That would be fantastic, yes, please. Yeah, I think um, there's also quite a lot of uh, victim-blaming attitudes around domestic violence, and oftentimes they're real subtle, and people even who have those beliefs themselves don't understand that they are they have victim blaming beliefs. Um, so it's things like thinking, well, if she just left, you know, she clearly she needs to leave that abusive relationship, and if she just left, she'd be much better off. But in fact, leaving is the most dangerous time, and oftentimes um, people experiencing domestic violence are weighing up all sorts of things when they decide whether to stay or whether to leave, and it can be safer for them to stay. Um, than to leave and safer for their children if they stay than to leave, um, especially if they don't have the right support around them to kind of keep them safe once they leave that abusive relationship. So I guess that's one big thing. I think there's also a 
quite a pervasive belief out there that victims, that, that an appropriate response for victims of domestic violence is to refer them to counseling. And, you know, whether that's EAP or just general counseling. And um, it's, it's about people not understanding that the victims do not have control over this problem. They are, they don't need counseling, they need safety in the first instance. So I think while someone is unsafe, the focus needs to be on safety. Down the line, once they're safe, okay, maybe at that point, they might need counseling, they might not need counseling, but um, it's, it should never be the first place that you send people because it, to them, says, I don't understand your situation. I think it's caused by your behavior, um, rather than understanding that this, the, the situation they're in is caused by someone else by someone else's behavior um, and they need, they need safety and protection. It's also about thinking that it's only physical violence and not understanding that domestic violence is fundamentally about one person controlling another person um, and uh, with a pattern, a whole pattern of behavior. And so kind of psychological abuse in many different forms is a really integral part of domestic violence. Um, and sometimes there isn't physical violence, and it's all psychological, but um, in fact, it can still be really dangerous if um, someone has threatened to kill their partner, but they've never actually hit them. We still need to take those threats really seriously, because there are certainly um, examples of people that have been killed um, with uh, nothing, no physical abuse up until that point, but threats to kill um, were there. And, and the same goes for children. So situations where um, people think the children have never been hit. So, you know, he's a good dad um, and that kind of thing. Um, but then the threats to the, it's all about the violence and the threats to the adult partner. But um, we've heard stories where, you know, the adult partner and the children are, are all killed at the same time. So it's kind of like that, if I can't have you, no one can have you kind of thing. And I, I have, as you've probably noticed, been using a bit of shorthand around he for the perpetrator and she for the victim. But, um, uh, you know, it's not always that way. Generally speaking, overwhelmingly, the most dangerous situations um, are ones that involve male perpetrators and female victims. But it's also really important to understand that um, domestic violence, the prevalence of domestic violence is, a, is similar or higher in the rainbow community um, and for particular groups. So I think transgender um, people in particular are really at high, high risk of domestic violence. I guess another myth, I've, I've, I made a list here, there's so many. <laughs> I've got two more. Um, so one more is that um, people often think that violence goes both ways, that that's really a really common dynamic and that, you know, it's very common for there to be intimate partner relationships where, it, where pe so people often believe that the violence is equal both ways. Um, and there is some research out there that says that, you know, women are just as violent as men in relationships. Um, so what we know is that, I guess, the research that shows that is fundamentally not looking at context, not looking at uh, is, is violence part of a pattern of controlling behavior or is it more resistance to control? Is violence um, perpetrated causing fear or causing injury or not? Because those, if you look at those things, if you look at violence within, within those contexts, it actually is really clear that there's a, there's a strong gender dynamic there. But um, again, you know, having that awareness that it, that it can happen really um, frequently in the rainbow community as well.
And, and so just back to that myth, it's, it's really uncommon for there to be equal power within a relationship where there's violence. It's overwhelmingly the case where that one person is the dominant partner who's using violence that's causing fear and injury while the other person is not. And then the last myth, that I, so I'm sure there are other ones as well, but these are kind of the main ones I thought of. The last myth I thought of was um, we so often hear people express beliefs around um, thinking that alcohol and drug use and stress and poverty are fundamental causes of domestic violence. So we would argue that they are not, that they might be. And, and so if we look at, say, alcohol and drug use, um, they are rarely the cause of the domestic violence. They are, we more think of them as being risk factors. So where there's a tendency for someone to control their partner, that if they're using alcohol or drugs, there's much more likelihood of physical violence and more serious physical violence. But we hear lots of stories where the person who's been using violence has stopped drinking or stopped taking drugs and the violence is, is usually lessened and maybe the physical violence is even stopped, but the controlling behaviors are usually still there um, unless they've actually taken steps to you know, take responsibility for their, their actions and and say, um, gone through a nonviolence uh, program. So yeah, that, that's my list for now. <laughs> yeah. And that's, a, that's an incredible list of, of, of myths and ideas that people may have around family violence. And I can imagine, is there a preference actually for the terminology there around um, domestic violence, family violence? Do you, do you have a preference? No, I don't at all. And I think it's actually important that people understand that they basically mean the same thing. Um, uh, and I know you're going to ask me a question about the legislation and it's Actually, at this really confusing point in um, terms of the law, because we have the Domestic Violence Victims Protection Act that came into force on the 1st of April, that is about the new workplace entitlements. But um, at the same time, the Family Violence Act replaced the Domestic Violence Act as of the 1st of July. So we now have in law, in law, two different terms being used. Um, so I, I really don't think it matters. And some people have a strong preference one way or the other. It's really just about making sure that your workplace or the people that, you know, around you have a shared understanding of what that means. And that's probably a, a good point to, to segue into the, the, the area for workplaces around family violence. So with the new law in place, what is expected of workplaces? And I guess with some of the issues you've touched on area, we can get a sense of why it's important for workplaces. But you know, what is the impact at the moment on workplaces when it comes to family violence situations? Right. So I'll answer so the a big question. First. <laughs> I'll do the impact first and then get to the legislation. So um, the impact, I think it is still really, really hidden. The, the whole issue of domestic violence is really hidden within workplaces. But um, Quite often, before this legislation, we would have employers coming to us for help because they had some serious incident that happened or someone was injured or killed or hospitalized or, or arrested or, you know, something like that. Um, and so it did all bubble to the surface. But um, I think that if workplaces don't have the right kind of systems and policies in place, it's, it's more likely to go reported and unnoticed and you might what the employer might see are performance issues um, you know a lot of absence or just someone leaving their job for a not very good reason um, and they might never know the real reason and I guess the thing is that we also know that well we know first of all that people who experience domestic violence who are in employment it's really common for the domestic violence to follow them to work 
So they get most common, they get harassed, um, you know, phone calls, texts, emails, um, that kind of um, just harassment while they're trying to do the job. Um, and for a smaller percentage of them, they are actually stopped while they're at work. So, and, and it might be a partner that they're with currently who's parking outside the workplace or coming in. And it might even look like a loving romantic type situation where you have a partner taking his, his um, girlfriend out to lunch, you know, every day or three times a week. Um, and, and people could see that from the outside as being, oh, isn't that nice? He takes her out to lunch every day of the week. Um, but in fact, it's kind of a monitoring, controlling behavior. But then for left an abusive partner, if they've relocated their home and he doesn't know where they live, quite often he still knows where they work. And so that's a good place for, for the um, abusive partner to be able to find their um, ex-partner and hang out and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then we also know that it can really affect work colleagues beyond that, just the target of the abuse because uh, there's one research study in the States done of um, victims of domestic violence and employment. 41% of them confided in coworkers, but not necessarily coworkers who had any power to do anything, um, but more likely to be, you know, people at their level in their teams who they knew at work and trusted. But we also know that uh, of people who have, and this is in New Zealand research, people who've experienced domestic violence who have told someone about the abuse reported that 40% of the time they told someone they did, that person did nothing to help them. So yeah, another kind of sign of why it's so important for workplaces to have a good program. So when people are brave enough to tell someone at work what's going on, um, that person knows how to help them, knows how to point them in the right direction. If they're not the right person to, to, to support them, knows who to send them to. Oh, I guess that was just part one of the question, wasn't it? Um, so just starting with the law that the requirements under the Domestic Violence Victims Protection Act are that employers provide um, 10 to, up to 10 days of paid domestic violence leave per year, uh, and also that employees um, have the right to request flexible work conditions um, relating to um, domestic violence, and that employers have to respond to those requests uh, the law says something like employers have to respond urgently within 10 days, which to me is a bit of a 10 days is not urgent, but anyway, that's what the law says. Um, and the other significant thing that the law does is it's changed the Human Rights Act so that um, employers may not discriminate against employees who are affected by domestic violence, um, which is fantastic. Because um, we we certainly knew before this law was passed that a lot of uh, victims of domestic violence who we'd worked with in the past, the thing they were most concerned about in um, uh, disclosing their experiencing to their employer was that it would affect their employment opportunities. So yeah, we think that's a really wonderful thing. The law also then has some some real specific things around. Um, how employees need to request these things and when they're entitled to them and how quickly lawyer, uh, employers need to respond and on what grounds employers can deny those entitlements. So there's a lot more detail that I'm, that I'm going into, but um, and some of that detail 
we think is less than ideal. So I gave the example of the 10 day response period. We think employers should be responding much more quickly than that if it's, if it's related to domestic violence. Um, and also that uh, employees don't, don't have those entitlements by law until they're employment for six months, until they have that job, have had that job for six months. So, um, you know, we strongly recommend that employers provide those entitlements from day one of employment. And I guess the thing that we're probably the most concerned about with that legislation is that it allows employers to request or even require that employees provide proof in order to access those entitlements. Um, so proof of domestic violence. So many people, you know, so many victims, most victims of domestic violence don't have proof. It's their word against the other person's word. It happens in the privacy of their home. They haven't rung police yet. Um, they haven't told their GP or disclosed to anyone yet because it's terrifying for them. So if we want to have a good workplace response, and I guess the other thing is that I've heard from a lot of employers that have concerns that that will be taken advantage of. If they don't require proof, or at least say that proof might be required, that people will take advantage of that. And so from employers who we've worked with for, for a while now, and I've talked to a few other employers that we haven't really supported, but who have been that um, paid domestic violence leave for a couple of years or more without requesting proof. Um, and so these are big employers like Westpac and a and Ministry of Justice. And they've all said that they haven't had not even one instance that of, of where they've suspected that someone has taken advantage of that provision. So I think that's good for people to know. It's reassuring that, and it's not surprising to me because um, there is a huge amount of stigma around domestic violence. People don't, it's not something people are likely to lie about. It's, it's kind of like lying about having cancer. It's just something that most people wouldn't do. Even, even if you're the type of person who's gonna lie about being sick and, and taking sick leave when you're not actually sick, I think it's really unlikely that you're going to say, I'm a victim of domestic violence and I need leave if you're not. Um, and in fact, most people who are experiencing domestic violence need to be proactively offered the leave and you know um, reassured that it's not gonna hurt their employment opportunities to do that and offered it proactively and are unlikely to ask for it otherwise. And that's probably a good opportunity then to say if if managers are worried or colleagues are worried, what is the best way to respond in that situation? If they're worried about a colleague, that's... Mm. And, and either side, I say too, you know, for a oh. victim side and if they're concerned about a, a colleague in terms of being an, a perpetrator. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it's best for employers to prepare for that ahead of time and ideally... Um, you know, training a group of what we would call first responders and letting your staff know who those people are um, so that if someone in your staff is experiencing domestic violence, they know who they can go to who's had that training and, and so they're more likely to feel safe disclosing to that person um, or one of those people. Um, but I guess, you know, if you're not there yet as an employer, um, there are helplines that um, specialist helplines. So we have Shine has a um, domestic violence helpline, and there's a couple other uh, toll-free specialist helplines run by Women's Refuge and the It's Not Okay campaign um, that that people can ring for advice. Those helplines are not just for victims; they're also for people who, and and actually the percentage of people ringing our line that um, 
are bringing about advice to help other people is growing dramatically, which I think is a good sign of, of more awareness. Um, but yeah, you, you can bring a helpline, get some advice. I guess to allow enough time for questions, if I ask one final question, I guess it would be, what can we all do to make a difference around creating a New Zealand where there isn't family violence or, or domestic abuse? You know, what, what are some of the actions we can take day to day? And then what are some of the perhaps bigger things we can do as workplaces outside you know, creating safe environments, you know, being a voice for change, for example? What are some of those things? Um, well, just one kind of specific thing on the workplace, I guess, firstly, is um, that we do have, because I haven't mentioned this yet, we do have free guidelines on policy and procedures that we've developed over years, because we started our DV Free program in 2001, and we came out with those guidelines a few years ago. We've updated them a couple times. They have specific references to the legislation as well, and it's a uh, quite a holistic approach with very specific practical recommendations and some kind of background information as well to help people understand why we're recommending those things. Um, so those are free to download from our DV Free website. Um, and the other free resource that we offer is an online learning module that we produced in collaboration with Westpac um, a few years ago and we've just recently updated it, um, which is also on our website and um, anyone can access that on the website. A lot of employers are putting that, the link to that um, learning module on their intranet or just making it accessible to staff so staff have an easy way of under learning just the basics about domestic violence. And it's, I think it's quite a good interactive um, module. But on the broader picture of, um, I did a little bit about this too, and where are my ideas? I guess the, one of the big problems in New Zealand around, around our issue is that the specialist sector, you know, Shine, Women's Refuge, and there's a whole range of very small local specialist services around the country um, that have, you know, mostly started up very, very grassroots, um, you know, from the kind of 80s and 90s until now. Um, and we have all been struggling be with chronic lack of funding and then you know as the it's not okay campaign and other efforts out there have raised awareness which is fantastic it's also meant more people knocking on our doors for services both uh, victims and also there's a real growth in um, a huge growth in people using violence who are seeking help to, because they're about their own behavior. So we have a stopping violence program in, in Auckland um, and other providers run similar things around the country. Um, when I first started it 20 years ago, like, at, you know, less than 1% of the men coming through our doors for that program were self-referred. Um, and now it's probably half. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's really gone up. So there's quite a lot of um, people who are, who are seeking support. Unfortunately, we can't help all of those people who knock on our doors because we just don't have the funding um, to do that. So, and I think that might even be worse in other areas. Yeah, so I guess in general, it's, it's the problem of, you know, increased awareness has meant increased demand for our services. We're so underfunded. And even though, you know, the current government has um, given a big boost to the funding for our sector, it's just nowhere near enough. Um, so our advocates, for example, and for a domestic violence specialist um, organization, even at a local level for our Auckland team, um, we're pretty big compared to other 
um, specialist services that work closely with police. We get a lot of police referrals. We've had to really limit the number of referrals that we can accept because it, it just was unsustainable and our advocates were just burning out. Um, you know, so there's just a lot that we're not able to do. It's, if, it's, if that's the case for us, it's probably worse in other parts of the country. So anyway, my point is support the local domestic violence, um, support domestic violence specialists, charities, whether it's one of the national ones that runs a helpline like us um, and Women's Refuge or whether it's local, um, your local services. And um, you can always ring our helpline to find who are your local services um, and likely that there's um, a handful of different services wherever you are. Um, and so supporting might be, you know, donating directly, might be fundraising. We all have fundraising appeals and different ways of fundraising. And it might also be, you know, lobbying your local MP um, to just keep the pressure on government. I mean, even, even though I think the government now is, is doing some great things and moving in the right direction, it certainly helps them to hear the voices from the community that are supporting what they're doing and, and encouraging them to do more. Um, more they hear that the better off we all are and then I guess the the last thing is you know at a real basic level if you know or suspect that someone you know whether it's in the workplace or your neighbor or your family member or your friend um, is experiencing or perpetrating domestic violence to do something or say something um, and I know it can be hard for people to figure out what that is um, we have a couple of I I'm biased, but I think they're quite useful pages on our website. Um, we have one page, and I can send you the link, Sarah. You can That'd be great. People. Um, so I have one page that's um, helping someone you know, so just some specific advice for people in that area, and you can always ring our helpline for advice. And then I guess another at another level, it's about challenging beliefs and attitudes that you hear that, um, that underpin family violence. So beliefs and attitudes that support violence against women, um, that support unhelpful beliefs about gender and relationships. Um, so we have another page on our website about that um, with kind of more specific tips. So I can send you both of those links. That would be wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. I, I can't believe, you know, in terms of the, the things that we've covered, just how as I said earlier on, how pervasive it is. But now it's been interesting to touch on those myths as well. And actually you start to build a picture of, of what it's like out there now. And also that role that workplaces play and just how critical that is. And some of the words that I wrote down thinking about the role that workplaces play is one around being that safety net, but also being that community that enables education, enables you know, the fundraising enables the, the voice for change and setting that yeah. precedent around what we accept and what we don't accept for behavior. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the Wellness Champions Network, head along to myhealthrevolution.co.nz and follow the links to subscribe. If you're in the network, thanks again and we look forward to catching up with you really soon. Music